Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for information on Pastor Clay's new book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus, this is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. The teaching moment that Jesus gives is perhaps the most important, in some sense the most important of all, because it deals with the Christ. It deals with who the Christ is. And if you don't know who the Christ is, then all the rest of it really doesn't matter. Teachers usually ask questions to see how much we know, but wise teachers know that questions can be used to teach us what we do not yet know. Jesus took them and turned them into a teaching opportunity for the people that were there and for you and me. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. If you were with us last week, you may remember that Jesus was asked three different questions. As Pastor Clay explained, those questions were really intended to trip Jesus up and try to get him into trouble with the Roman authorities or with the people. After that, nobody dared ask him any more questions because he had so completely destroyed what their motive was for asking the question in the first place. As we've seen throughout the study in the book of Mark, the religious leaders didn't like Jesus, and they were desperate to stop him. Well, today in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, we're going to see as Jesus asks a question in order to help the people understand a very important truth. As always, we're grateful that you've joined us today. I was, I was reflecting, I was thinking really just last night about some of my seminary days and it's, it's, it's been a while since I've been in seminary, but when I was working on my master's um, back in the uh, early and uh, mid-90s, uh, I was thinking about most of my professors in, in seminary. In seminary, if you don't know what a seminary is, we have one here in Wake Forest, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's a... Uh, uh, institution of higher learning uh, that is uh, spiritually based. It, it teaches about Christ and about the kingdom, and it's where people go that are going into vocational ministry. Feel God's called to vocational ministry, and um, and and while the seminary has an undergraduate degree program, uh, the seminary proper is actually the master's level and, and doctorate level. So when I was in seminary, uh, most of my professors welcomed questions. Most of them did. Uh, the one uh, exception that really sticks out in my mind is uh, Dr. Russ Bush. Now, Dr. Bush, uh, I actually came to know Dr. Bush uh, quite well because later when I went back and did some, some doctoral work, um, Cindy was Dr. Bush's administrative assistant for several years and really got to know him a lot better. But uh, Dr. Bush was, was a great man of God. He's gone home to be with Jesus. He died of cancer a few years ago. But, uh, but Dr. Bush did not like questions in his class. Now, he, he was the, the, the dean of faculty. I think I said that. He was the dean of faculty. And he, he taught Ph.D. classes and all that stuff. But on the master's level, he taught one class. He taught philosophy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> he taught philosophy. Now, uh, I, honestly, I love Dr. Bush's philosophy class. But a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of guys avoided it like the plague because uh, Dr. Bush's philosophy class was known to come with a, a fairly heavy load of work. At least that's what they, what they thought. But Dr. Bush did not like questions being asked during his lecture time. 
As a matter of fact, right, right in the syllabus that you're given, the first day of class, it said in there, please refrain from asking questions during the lecture time unless it is absolutely necessary. Now, everyone should have known what that meant. That meant do not ask questions. And that's the way Dr. Bush liked it. So one day, uh, we're in class, and we're probably maybe, I don't know, close to halfway through the semester. And Dr. Bush is in the midst of his lecture. He's been lecturing for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes or so. And all of a sudden, this guy uh, raises his hand. He wants to ask a question. Well, of course, Dr. Bush being Dr. Bush totally ignores the young man and goes right on lecturing. <laughs> it just, just goes right on lecturing. Uh, and the young man is apparently undeterred by Dr. Bush's ignoring of his hand. He just keeps his hand up the whole time. He's even, even doing this a little bit. So after maybe, I don't know, maybe another 10 minutes or so of lecturing, Dr. Bush stops. And he, he, kept, he used to keep his glasses right on the end of his notes like this. He looked down at his notes and he stopped, took his glasses off, set them down on the lectern, looks up, kind of a sigh. Yes. And the young man <clears throat> begins, Dr. Bush, isn't it true that blah, 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 whatever it was he was saying. Just as Dr. Bush suspected, which is often true of seminary students, the young man didn't really have a question. He had a statement that he desired to make that he phrased in the form of a question so that he could enlighten the entire class on some great revelation that he felt he had been given and that he needed to share with the rest of us. The young man finishes his statement, his question, and Dr. Bush says, well, I've just spent the last 45 minutes explaining how that couldn't possibly be true. So why don't you get up and come down here and lecture the class on how that is true? That's what we, that's what we said. And, and the young man starts going, he starts stammering and stuttering. He's like, well, well no, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, and Dr. Bush just cuts him off. Yes, you are. I've just explained how that couldn't possibly be the case, and you've just stood up and said how you think that is the case, so why don't you come down here and lecture the class on how that is possible? I swear, it was so silent in there, you could hear that guy's heart beating. <laughs> he's, just, he's just frozen, like, like a deer in the headlights. He just, and after, I guess, what Dr. Bush considered was appropriate time, he picks his glasses back up, puts them on the end of his nose... He goes right back to lecturing. <laughs> goes right on. Nobody, nobody ever raised their hand in Dr. Bush's class <laughs> again. <sighs> Questions can be a tricky thing. If you happen to be with us last week, you may remember that we looked at a, a part of Mark chapter 12 where Jesus was approached by three different groups. One individual and, and, and two different groups. And he was, he was approached and he was asked three different questions. And Jesus so uh, perfectly and so completely answers their questions that when, when the, that part of the text finishes, it said after that, nobody dared ask him any more questions because he had so 
completely destroyed what their motive was for asking the question in the first place. But out of the questions that he was asked, Jesus took them and turned them into a teaching opportunity for the people that were there and for you and me, because we have it recorded in God's word. That's the great thing about questions. Now, if you've been with us in this study in the book of Mark, you know that one of the things that we've said about Mark is that Mark records Jesus, the man of action, that most of Mark's 16 chapters deal with the actions of Jesus. There is some teaching put uh, scattered in there, but not nearly as detailed as some of the other writers give. Mark had his purposes for that. God had his purpose for, purposes for that when he had Mark record his, his gospel letter. Today, as we move towards the end of Mark chapter 12, we're going to see three more teaching moments. Now, we're only going to get one this morning uh, and the other two next week. But the one this morning, interestingly enough, Jesus begins by asking a question. But what he ends up doing is drawing out a truth that is so vital for us to know. In fact, this it could be argued that this first teaching moment that Jesus gives is perhaps the most important, even though it's brief, especially in Mark's recording, that it's in some sense the most important of all because it deals with the Christ. It deals with who the Christ is. And you all probably know this, but if you don't know who the Christ is, then all the rest of it really doesn't matter much. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Mark chapter 12. That's where we are uh, this week and next week. And then we'll wind up chapter 12. And then we'll be moving into the Christmas season where we'll take a little bit of break from the Mark series and finish it right after the first of the year or shortly after the first of the year. And so uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 or your, your, uh, your phones if you've got it on there or your iPads or whatever the case may be. And today we're only, we're only looking at, within the text at just two or three verses. This first teaching that Jesus brings that he and he asks this question. I'm going to tell you that some of this is going to deal with some some technical historical parts of of the whole life of Israel. But hopefully we'll draw out why it's important for you to know that in just a minute. Y'all with me today? Appreciate you coming, sitting down towards the front. That's really great. Sitting together. I encourage you to do that more and more. Uh, inviting people to come and be with you. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Father, uh, this morning, uh, again, I'm so grateful, uh, as always, I really am grateful to be your messenger boy. And I ask that you take the truth of your word. And apply it to our hearts. Uh, Father, as I said uh, just a moment ago, much of this is historical and takes place uh, thousands of years uh, before the moment in which we're living right now. But would you help uh, the men and women, the boys and girls, uh, each person in this room today, would you open our hearts and minds uh, to receive uh, the application, the truth of what this uh, means for our lives as we look at this idea of who the son of David is. Uh, who this is, who this Christ 
is for our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, here's kind of the first teaching moment I want you to look at. And I've, I've got it listed like this. Jesus asks a question to teach us the truth. Jesus asks a question to teach us the truth. Now, um, this question that Jesus just asked the crowd is uh, far more important than any of the questions that he was given last week. The questions Jesus were given last, was given last week were designed to... Really, they were, you can go back and listen to that message or read it. They really were designed to hide the truth of who Jesus was. Jesus' question is designed to expose the truth. The questions that Jesus was asked last week really were designed to get Jesus at best thrown in prison or, or worse. Jesus' question that he begins with this morning is designed to set men and women free. Now, I should say, technically, Mark's recording, excuse excuse me, technically Mark's recording of this question is really the second question that Jesus asks in connection with this, this whole idea of the son of David. He actually starts out by approaching the religious leaders and he asks them a question first, according to Matthew chapter 22. And it looked like this. Jesus talking to the religious leaders, okay? Y'all with me? Say yes. yes. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, uh, some of you already know this, uh, I'm sure, but the word Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. It's, 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 it sounds to me in, in Hebrew they would say the Mashiach. Uh, in Greek, it would be the Christ. The word essentially meant uh, the anointed one, the, the deliverer, the savior, something like that. It's essentially what it, what it meant. It was the Christ. It was the Messiah. The, the, the Jews would more likely be speaking Hebrew or uh, they, would, they would say the Mashiach, the Messiah. You see, all through the, the, the pages of the Old Testament, all through there, scattered throughout there, are these prophecies about this Messiah, this Christ, who someday would come. It, it, it was, it was, it's just filled in the Old Testament with these promises from the prophets and in the Psalms, uh, these, these predictions, these prophecies, these ideas about the Messiah, who he, who he would be, where he would come from, what he would do, what he would accomplish. Now, many of you know that that for the most part, the Jews misunderstood why the Messiah was coming. They understood that when the Messiah came, he was going to uh, set the nation of Israel free from enslavement to other nations. In, this, in, in the context of Jesus' time, Roman Bondage. Romans had conquered them. And so when the Messiah came, if he came during that time, he was going to set the people free from the Romans. And he was going to reestablish the glory days of the nation of Israel. And there had been some glory days in the nation of Israel. So when Messiah came, he was going to be part of that. He was going to, he was going to set the captives free. He was going to bust loose the chains. He was going to set them free from Roman bondage. He was going to reestablish the, the, the Jewish empire, the greatness of the Jewish empire. Now, again... Most of you are aware of the fact, probably, that God's plan was actually much bigger than that. 
But they were, they were too wrapped up, quite honestly. They were too wrapped up in themselves to see it. You know, I was thinking about that even this morning. I was kind of going over my message. I was thinking, you know, I, I wonder in our own lives, not pointing fingers. I mean, you can point your finger at yourself. I wonder in our own lives how many times some of us perhaps are missing God's greater plans for our life. Because we're too wrapped up in ourselves. We're too wrapped up in our own situation. We're too wrapped up in our uh, situation, our circumstances, our this that we're going through or that we're going through. I wonder if perhaps we are sometimes missing God's greater plan for our life. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. It's just a question to ask. But anyway, one thing that the Jews did know. One thing that that, that they did understand, one thing that they did get right is that the Messiah, the Christ, when he came, he would be a son of, and in, in the Middle Eastern context, that phrase meant, could mean a direct actual son, but it also could mean a descendant of. Do you understand? That when you talked about uh, being a son, that, that, that could be several generations down the line. You are of the line. You are of the lineage. You, are, are, you have come from that line of, of persons. Is that, do you understand what I'm saying? One thing the Jews understood is that when the Messiah came, he would be of the line. He would be of the lineage. He would be a son of David. David, the, uh, the, the, the king, King David, who had ruled during the glory days of Israel about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Just to put it in some type of context. A thousand years before David rules and, and his son Solomon after him. Those were the glory days, the golden days of the nation of Israel. When the Messiah came, he was going to, to reestablish those glory days. And one of the things that the Messiah was going to do, and this is why they knew this, this was, that, that the Messiah, when he came, he was going to reestablish the, the, the line or the kingdom of David. They knew that. They knew that because God had promised it. To them in something that's called the Davidic covenant. How many of you have ever heard of the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. It's also summarized in, in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 17 and, and 2 Chronicles 6. But the context of the, of the covenant, stay with me, I told you we had to do some of this stuff. The context of the covenant is this. David wants to build God a temple. He wants to build an actual building, a temple, uh, a house of God for God. You see, up until that point, the nation of Israel was still worshiping God. They were still meeting God in what was known as the tabernacle. Uh, I think we have a picture of it. The tabernacle was basically, it was a portable temple. They, they could tear it down and move it with them all the way. This started back in the time of Moses. Y'all remember that? Back in the time of Moses, they're wandering around the wilderness. And, and this, this place where they would meet God, was, was, it was a tent. They could set it up. They could tear it down. And it was the place where they could meet God. Well, David comes along and David has been prosperous. And, and David has a, a great uh, house. And, and David David's rightfully says, well, something's not, not right about this. Why should I dwell in this in this uh, this beautiful building, and God dwells in a tent? 
Now, you and I know that God doesn't really dwell in any man-made place. But for the sake of, of meeting the people of God and uh, the, for the Israelites to be able to come and, and, and come into the house of God in this place where they could offer sacrifice and where they could meet God, there was the tabernacle. David said, that's not right. It's not, it's not right that God lives in a tent and I'm living this, in this palace and it's, it's time to build God a temple. Now, God tells David that he's not going to build him a temple. That his son actually will build the temple. And then he gives David this promise. And I want to look at it in the first Chronicles 17 passage for just a minute. Here's what, here's what he says to David. That's the context of, this, of where, this covenant, how it springs up. So in first Chronicles 17, uh, God is speaking and he says to David, he says, When your days are over... And you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons. And he, in that context, he's talking about his immediate son, he's referring to Solomon. I will establish his kingdom. Now watch this. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne. What's that next word? And I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. He's talking about Saul. Saul had turned his back on God and joined, you know, gone into witchcraft and all that other kind of stuff. He turned his back on God. God said, I won't take it away as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom. What's that next word? And his throne will be established. Say it. Forever, Three times God uses this, this word forever. I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. I'm going to uh, be with him forever. His line is going to be forever. This is what is known as the Davidic covenant. And it is what is called an unconditional covenant. Unconditional because, well, David doesn't even ask for it in the first place. There's no, there's no record that David even asks for this. God simply starts speaking and God gives this promise and the promise comes with with no strings attached the promise comes with no uh, conditions attached to it God simply says this is what I'm going to do David I'm establishing your line your kingdom beginning with your son and it will be a line forever that is the Davidic covenant now I know some of you are sitting out there and you're thinking if you're still awake and I need to know this because, listen, you need to know this because you need to understand how amazingly perfect God's word is and how everything fits together so precisely and so perfectly in such a way that nobody could have manufactured this. Nobody could have made this up. Nobody could have just come up with this on their own, that, that it, it, it demonstrates the the accuracy and the authority of God's word. And why does that matter? Because, ladies and gentlemen, all of life, in essence, is made up of choices. Choices that we make in life. We've even talked about that over the last few weeks as we've worked through Mark chapter 12. That's come up before. All of life is made up of choices. Would you agree with that? 
Right? Uh, am I, am I going to go to school or not go to school? Am I going to this school or am I going to that school? Should I take this job or not take that job? Should I like this person or not like this person? Am I going to have a Big Mac or what? You know, life is made up of choices. And ultimately, life's choices are based on or come off of one ultimate choice. And the ultimate choice is simply this. Do I follow God and his direction for my life or do I go my own way? That, in essence, is the question that every single one of us asks in one way or another at one time or another. Am I going to follow God if God says uh, treat people this way? Am I going to follow God or am I just going to not care because I'm mad and I'm going to I'm going to let them have it? If God says I'm to do marriage this way, am I going to do marriage God's way or am I going to do marriage my way because I'm not being treated fairly and they don't deserve for me to love them unconditionally uh, because they don't act like they love me unconditionally. So I'm not I'm, I'm going to choose my own way. And on and on we could go right with it with a million other questions or choices that we make in life. The ultimate question is, am I going to follow God or am I not going to follow God? OK, fast forward a thousand years to the time of Jesus and his interaction with the religious leaders and with the people. Jesus asked the religious leaders about the Christ. Hey, hey, what about the Christ? Whose son is he? They correctly respond, son of David. They, they know the scriptures. They know what it says. They know what it teaches them. And they're absolutely accurate and right when they say it. Who, who's the Christ? Whose son is he? Oh, David. He's, of the line, he's going to be of the line of David. And so then, as Mark records, then Jesus turns to the crowd. After he gets the answer from the religious leader, he then turns to the crowd. And I want to read it to you again, 35 through 37, this time from the New Living Translation. I want you to, to again, hear what he says. Uh, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple. He asked. So he, he's already asked the religious leaders, uh, the Christ, whose son is he? David. Why do the teachers, and listen, you, you can see Jesus, he's standing there, the people are around and He's just the master teacher. Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now here, so Jesus quotes Psalm 110. He first asks, why do the religious leaders say that that uh, the Christ is going to be the son of David. And then he so, quotes Psalm 110, and then he comes back, here comes his commentary, and he says, since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? And then it says the large crowd listened to him with great delight. I, I, I can imagine that they did because the religious leaders had only given them rules and, and regulations and a, and a stale form of religion that, that took them farther from God and left them weighed down. And Jesus was giving them absolute truth that would set them free and change their eternal destinies if they would grab a hold of the truth in which he was giving them right there in that moment. The Christ. Whose son is he? David. Huh. Well, now that's interesting. Because David himself says, and Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is in the Psalms. You can look it up. You can find it. Psalm 110 is what is referred to as a messianic psalm. It's one of those passages of scripture that 
prophesies about the Messiah. It tells some things about the Messiah and when he comes and things that will happen. So, to paraphrase Jesus' question, here I'm, I'm bringing this to when to paraphrase Jesus' question, he essentially says, well, it's interesting that we all agree that the Christ will be of the line of David. But yet, David himself, in Psalm 110, was written by David. David himself called the Christ, my Lord. How can the Christ be David's Lord, but come after him? Huh. And he just leaves it hanging there. For the conclusion to be drawn, that the only way that that would be possible at all, is if the Christ already existed. Before David. The only way that it could be possible is if the Christ were the eternal God. And that the Christ, as the eternal God, in the fullness of time, came as a man in the line of David. So that he could technically be a son of David, but at the same time be David's Lord. That's the only way it's possible. And the truth was right there in front of them. If they would get a hold. Listen, Jesus had been, had been not only teaching, he had been showing, right? And all those miracles we've looked at, especially throughout the book of Mark, he had been showing, proving that he was God in the flesh. He was demonstrating that truth. He was proclaiming that truth. And it was right there. The only way, and everybody agreed that the Messiah would be the son of David, but the only way that would be possible is if he preexisted David. That's the only way he could be David's Lord And then take on flesh and become a man in the line of David. So, here it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who had no sin became sin. He took on sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Galatians chapter 4 puts it like this. Maybe you know this passage of scripture. Would you read this out loud with me? But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Somebody ought to say amen or shout or do something at that. That you have become A son, an heir, adopted into the family of God due to nothing that you have done yourself, but due only to what Jesus Christ, the eternal God, did as he took on flesh and became a man. We refer to it sometimes as the incarnation, taking on flesh. We're going to celebrate that in the next few weeks during the Christmas season. That's what the Christmas season is all about. But it culminates, ladies and gentlemen, the culmination of his coming was to die. Jesus came. To die. Jesus came, here it is, to bring, bring that statement back up, Tyler. The Son of God became the Son of Man. And some of you know that was a favorite term that Jesus used for himself. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. That's what the Galatians 4 passage is all about. That because the Son of God took on flesh and became the God-man, 
It made it possible for the sons of men. That's, that's you and me, folks. Sinful, disobedient men. We could become the sons of God. Not in the sense that you understand. Not in the sense that we become God. But as the text said in Galatians 4, that we are adopted into the family of God. And as, as Paul so beautifully brings out, and therefore we are heirs in the very kingdom of God as a result of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. That's the point, ladies and gentlemen. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. And that is an unbelievable truth that should, that should guard our hearts every day and fill our hearts with joy at that knowledge. Can I say to you here this morning, I, I don't know everybody, I don't know anybody who will be watching or listening to this message But if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, can I say this to you? You are invited to do so even today. That you can invite Jesus Christ into your life. Well, how do I do that? Really, I just just put it like this. It's really just like, it's really simple. You have to begin by admit, just to admit your own sin. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I therefore come short of God's standard, which is... Perfection, holiness, and it is to admit your own sin. Second, it is to acknowledge that there is nothing you can do. In other words, you, you can't be good enough. You can't work your way out of it. You can't, you can't work it off. You can't pay for it. You can't give enough money. You can't attend church enough times. You can't work in, in some ministry area. That There's nothing that you can do to pay for your sin. Third, it is to accept his sacrifice. That it was his sacrifice on the cross that made it possible. And can I tell you something? That's where a lot of people stumble because it, it requires that I humble myself after I acknowledge, man, I can't, I can't fix this. This is one mess I can't fix. I have to accept his sacrifice for my sins. And having come to that place where I accept his sacrifice, I'm willing to then say, to ask Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins and to come into my life. Just say, God, God, I've blown it. God, I am a sinner. God, I'm separated from you and I deserve hell, quite honestly, God. But now I know that Jesus Christ, the son of David, came in the fullness of time and he paid the sin debt that I could never pay, God. I want him to be my savior. If you don't know Christ as your savior, you're invited just today. Even even in in your own moment and just bowing your head and acknowledging that. And asking Christ into your life. If you're here today and you've already trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then in a moment you're going to be invited to commemorate, to celebrate that moment when Christ gave his life. When you take that bread, when you come down front and you break that bread, you're demonstrating his body broken for you. And you take it in with the full knowledge that that every lash that was lashed, every bruise that was given, every smack that was given every sin that was placed on his body that it was done for you and when you take that cup that fruit of the vine you are acknowledging that his blood was shed for you and as you take that cup in you are reminded that it is his blood and his blood alone that can cleanse you from your unrighteousness if you're here today and you know Christ is your Savior and as far as you know, you're living as best you know how you're growing in this thing, but you're, you're trying, there's no open rebellion or open sin in your life, then God's invitation is for you to come down in a few moments and partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're here by yourself, and, and please feel free to come. If you're here as a couple or as a family, uh, you come in just a moment. But it is the Lord's Supper, as I always remind people, it doesn't belong to cross culture. It belongs to the body of Christ, to the church. And all those who know Christ 
are invited to come. If you're here and you're, I don't know about this or I'm not sure, listen, don't, don't get up, don't come. If, if you're not at, at peace with that. But today, what we do, and we've done this traditionally on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We, we always do it on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We're acknowledging that we have so much to be thankful for. Greatest of all is the fact that His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. Well, on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, we're thankful that we could participate today in the Lord's Supper together as a church family. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that helps us to keep grounded in the reality that we owe everything to Jesus. It was His sacrifice that made our salvation possible. As Pastor Clay reminded us today, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Our adoption into His family was made possible only because of His amazing grace. Hallelujah! What a Savior! We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their lives feel disconnected with the type of life and faith that they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback form from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy of I Get It today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're looking for. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.